Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today we have the pleasure of being joined by Professor Galen Ferguson. Professor Ferguson is a core member of the faculty at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. He's a graduate of Exeter and Yale and holds a doctorate in cultural anthropology from Stanford. He's also a senior teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist lineage and has been a teacher in residence at the San Francisco Zen Center and Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California. He's also the author of two books, Natural Bravery, Fear and Fearlessness as a Direct Path of Awakening and Natural Wakefulness, Discovering the Wisdom We Were Born With. So Professor, it's great to have you here with us today. How are you doing? Good, good to be here. So I'd like to focus our conversation today around the topics of fear and fearlessness, and we'll maybe kind of expand from there into other material that you're considering right now. To provide some background and to kind of introduce our audience to you a little bit, when did these topics start to crystallize for you? So in my own training in mindfulness meditation, my first Buddhist meditation teacher was Tibetan, Chogyam Trungpa mm. Rinpoche, who is also the founder of the university where I teach in Boulder, Colorado. So many years ago, probably in the mid-70s, he began to talk a lot about a path of bravery. And one of the sayings from that set of teachings was, unless we know the nature of fear, we cannot understand fearlessness. So that's, what is that? That's about 40 years ago now. Yeah, more than 40 years wow. ago. But I would say that in my own experience, I would say after 9-11, mm. 2001, it seemed to me that we were living more and more in a culture of fear. And perhaps you know the work of Brene Brown, the professor at University of Houston. And Brene Brown also talks about a culture of fear that she starts to see in her work. She's a professor of social work. And so, yes, after 9-11, of course, the talk about terrorism, but also fear of each other, that sense of the rise of a sense of, really, you could say the social fabric of our society fraying more and more, more polarization, more split from each other, just more out and out xenophobia and fear of each other, less neighborliness, less sense of what we are as a society, what we hold in common, our shared humanity. And, and so then various people nowadays talk about disconnects, that we're disconnected from each other, we're disconnected from the natural world, and we're disconnected from ourselves. So in writing Natural Bravery, I wanted to explore each of those to a certain degree. Our fear toward ourselves or relating to our own fear, our fear of others, and our fear at this point with climate change being, you know, sort of the number one challenge that humanity faces. Fear of nature even in a certain way. What's going to be the consequences of what we've set in motion through our fossil fuel use? So. That's a little bit of how I came to be interested in, it seemed to be a topic of our time, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so inside of that, in just the phrase natural bravery itself, there's kind of a statement, not necessarily an assumption because you've done a lot of thinking into it, but a, a take. And so why do you think that that stance of courage is our more basic nature? That's a really good question because, you know, there have been philosophers and thinkers and teachers in different traditions to say, well, actually, we're selfish and mean and even the, at a certain point, uh, selfish gene, right? Sort of research and, and theories about that. The tradition that I practice in and that I inherit and, and that feels truer to me is that we have some basic compassion. And there's tons of research nowadays about that, our compassionate instinct that from an evolutionary point of view, bonding with each other is a sense of kinship and family and kindness seems to be hardwired into us. 
So in the same way that that kindness is hardwired, and the word kind in English is related to kin, there seems to be some hardwired bravery or courage, some innate courage that pops out at, at moments, you know, without prediction. And the story that I tell in Natural Bravery is of the New York subway guy who's standing there with his daughter and sees someone fall into the, near the tracks and that a train is coming. And he says to his daughter, stay there and around him to people, watch my daughter, jumps in and helps someone that he doesn't know, risks his own life and so forth. So where does something like that come from? So we either say, well, that's really, you know, almost supernatural or something. Or is that actually something popping out that's innate, that's in us, but that gets covered over with defensiveness, contraction, and all these ways that we end up being conditioned in our society to fear each other and to doubt that innate courage. So that's really what the book proposes as something for us to think about. So I'm not trying to be Pollyanna-ish or pretending that there aren't immense acts of violence and so forth going on, but just beginning to question this narrative that we're, we're basically, it's me first and uh, me only and selfishness. Maybe that isn't actually how humanity has been able to survive and thrive in certain ways, you know, over these centuries and millennia at this point. Maybe there is something deeply rooted in us that is resourceful, strong. I looked at some of the qualities in your previous podcast that you've explored. You know, I would say many of those qualities are innate. They're like seeds. And then the trainings that you propose are ways of developing these innate capacities. And I think there's neuroscience backing this up at this point. Yeah, absolutely. How could a person experience innate courage? What might be some of the flavors of that? And if I could, even for yourself, how do you experience innate natural courage? That's a very good question. I do propose in the book mindfulness meditation practice, mindfulness awareness, as a way of contacting this innate bravery. That may be plausible to someone. It may not, because often, even now with the mindful movement being as large as it is, there's often a notion that meditation means blanking my mind, getting rid of thoughts or stopping my thoughts. But meditating from the point of view of contacting this innate bravery is to say that we're going to sit down with the attitude of making friends with ourselves as we are not an ideal or perfect, you know, Brene Brown talks about the sense of, of shame at being ordinary. She, she sees this in her own practice and in her mm. research, that there's mm. more and more sense that in a celebrity culture, you need to be extraordinary and something really off the chart to feel good about oneself. So meditation from the point of view of contacting innate bravery is that just to sit with oneself simply without add-ons, you know, to turn the phone off, I'm not texting, I'm not having a snack, I'm not talking to anybody, I'm just going to be with myself, that itself expresses some bravery. And in retreats that I've led, sometimes that's difficult for people. We're just going to sit here and we're not going to have, you know, all the usual connections to social media and so forth. We're going to go back to a kind of basic simplicity that all our ancestors experienced before there were all these wonderful devices we're going to try and return to some basic humanity. Right. So meditation enables us to contact our natural courage, our natural bravery. And the act of meditation itself is an expression of that courage and bravery as we get in touch with ourselves. And 
I think of sometimes as we cast loose from the familiar moorings of what we think about ourselves or what's familiar to us. It takes real courage to just go forth in that way. Additionally, I wonder, in in kind of a felt sense, even an embodied sense, to call out these, these qualities in ourselves so that we can become more aware of them. If I could, again, how do you experience yourself, your own natural courage? Hmm. Strangely enough, the first thing that comes to mind is that by sitting with myself, what I often notice is my own fearfulness. Unless we know the nature of fear, we won't understand fearlessness. This innate bravery shows up for me in a willingness to slow down and feel my own body or feel my own heart. And when I do that, I, the first thing I notice is, oh, I'm sort of road runnering around a lot of the time. And that speed, that sheer speed of busyness, and of course, there's many things to get done and we all have responsibilities, but that's actually keeping me slightly hovering above my own feelings. And that when I pause and let myself sink into my body and my own emotions, I notice, oh, there's a vulnerability or there's a shakiness or I'm worried about the health in my family or whatever it might be, a student at work. So I first notice it as a kind of concern. And so I experience my bravery in being willing to feel my fears, to feel my concern. No, I think that's a that's a beautiful way to frame it, actually. And I, it, it really resonates for me personally, where I've often had the experience of moving through a day and I'll feel this kind of to share a little bit about myself for a moment, it's I'm, my leaning is absolutely toward anxiety as my kind of drug of choice. And so I'll definitely have the sense inside myself of that kind of feeling building up in the, the top of the chest, the base of the throat, whatever it might be, as I kind of frantically move through all of the tasks you're describing. And when you drop into that more place of stillness or settling, then absolutely, probably the first thing that I experience is, oh, I am really feeling anxious about stuff right now. And you have to kind of, experience that out a little bit, to use the language from psychology, in order to kind of allow it to flow through and get to the maybe that more stance as you're expressing of natural bravery. I wonder, Professor, if this connects a little bit to how you frame fear inside of the book, where you express these kind of four different fears. We have a fear of ourselves, a fear of other people, of emptiness, and of manifesting. And I thought that's a really interesting way to position fear in the world. This seems to connect on some level to a quote-unquote fear of ourselves, but I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that maybe if I'm reading too much into that. I don't think you're reading too much at all. It is a kind of series of concentric circles of first opening to ourselves, then fear of others, then fear of spaciousness or openness or being willing to let go some of the handholds that we usually move around and then fear of manifesting and moving into activity. Any fear that comes up, part of the difficulty or the disconnect is our unwillingness to feel what we're feeling. In previous podcasts, I noticed you've looked into anger or grief comes to mind for Mm -hmm. me. So with each of those, I would say the journey, the journey of bravery, of courage is to be willing to feel. There are so many ways in our society of anesthetizing ourselves, of numbing ourselves. We all know this and we engage in various, some people call them soft addictions or whatever, but all of these are ways of not feeling. So starting there of willing to feel Mm -hmm. what I'm I'm actually feeling, not so much to new labels for it or an analytical insight into it, 
but the willingness to feel as this basic bravery. And then from there, if I extend that toward myself, then I'm more empathetic. The possibility is there to be willing to stay with someone else's feeling. For me, like one of the one of the approaches that you carry inside of your book and inside of your work more broadly that I've found most compelling personally is this idea of a fear of our own quote unquote emptiness that you've you've alluded to here a little bit. And that we kind of lack something and are constantly trying to fill it up because we feel that to use uh, to use Rick's language, that quote unquote hole in the heart. And it certainly jives with our model of strengths development where, you know, one way to go about filling that sense of emptiness is by filling ourselves with various strengths we develop over time so we become more resilient, all of that good stuff. But for you, what in your own experience are some of the best ways that people can address that underlying feeling they might have of emptiness or spaciousness inside themselves? I like the phrase hole in the heart. I do think that we often experience this as a kind of inner lack. There's something missing. It could also be just the sense that I'm not enough. You know, we would think, hearing it, why would anybody be a fear of space? Wide open spaces, isn't that the American dream that we just want openness and freedom and spaciousness? But actually, maybe there is something slightly anxiety producing around openness around things not being completely tied down and fixed. I'm thinking of the writer David Loy, who writes a lot about lack and this inner, inner sense of something missing and that we, a lot of the accumulation mm-hmm. in our society and culture has to do with trying to fill that inner sense of emptiness. There's an inner sense of some kind of hole or gap or something that yeah. I'm trying to fill. So in talking about this, you know, it's the same as the earlier part being willing to experience that without turning away from it in shame or guilt or like there's something wrong with me that I feel this this inadequacy or this sense of lack. So making friends with that would itself be the opening into this more spacious relationship with ourselves, with our own fears, and with space itself by, in a sense, sort of accommodating. I think that's what I'm searching for here is We're talking about allowing it to be there, not trying to, oh, I should just be willing to jump into emptiness. What's wrong with me that I feel vulnerable or a little bit afraid about how vast and, you know, the universe is quite a big place that we found ourselves in. You know, what is all of this? So, you know, it's not strange that we contract and we hide in a certain way. And so softening to that would allow us to perhaps open into into being able to enjoy that openness, that spaciousness. So this opening to feelings, to the feelings of others, to our life, to nature. Do you see what I mean? Like all of that could be on a continuum. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to take a chance here and go into what I think of as the deep end of the pool because it's a rare opportunity to be with someone as both as deeply practiced as you as a Buddhist practitioner and also deeply informed in a scholarly sense. So I want to keep going with this topic of the fear of fill-in-the-blank, spaciousness or emptiness. And as you you are certainly very familiar with, the notions of emptiness as an attribute 
of certainly our own psychology, our own experiences moment to moment, and as an attribute of much, even perhaps all, of material reality. The sense that our experiences are all transient and compounded and dependently arising, so they are empty of essence. They are empty of absolute self-nature. There is an inherent groundlessness, as they speak of in Zen, in our own experience. And this can become really alarming <laughs> to people, as you know, <laughs> sometimes in deep meditative practice, intensive practice, sometimes just in everyday life, where you start to realize that your own experiences and this seemingly glued together sense of me, myself, and I is actually really insubstantial and really foamy. You can't hold on to any bit of it and you can't stand on any of it. So I kind of thought you were getting at that particular fear, which is a very real fear. Even the existentialist might talk about it as like an existential dread of annihilation, right? Because you feel like you're opening out into everything and therefore you're nothing. So setting the table there, I loved what you were talking about, about helping people be more comfortable with openness and with spaciousness. And I wondered if you could speak to other things that you have found either for yourself or in your teachings of other people that help people become more at ease with and more accepting of the fact of an inherent emptiness slash groundlessness in the nature of our own experiences. Like I said, at deep end of the pool. <laughs> but I figured if there's a lifeguard in the room, it's got to be you. <laughs> I don't know about that part, but uh, yes, it does sound like the deep end of the pool. I, I'm grateful that you mentioned Zen and the Zen tradition, in part because my teacher, who was Tibetan, admired and respected Zen traditions and was close friends with Suzuki Roshi, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center. So this summer, I'm rereading Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and trying to kind of steep myself in that book, which will be 50 years next year. It's its 50th anniversary. So I very much like Roshi's way of explaining these deep end of the pool experiences and philosophies with simple things like two friends, and they just say, well, let's have a cup of tea. <laughs> so he makes the whole thing sound a lot more homey and familiar, so that part of, I think, our bouncing off the word mm. emptiness is our notion of, oh, without solid, inherent nature, are things really, you know, am I going to fall apart? Is, is the world going to work? But actually, as far as I understand those teachings, that's what's already going on right now, <laughs> that there is no solid self. Things are dependently yeah, yeah. rising. Right, they're changing yeah, faster and faster. And that's the reality we're already living in. So we've, we've done okay so far at that. So there doesn't have to be this sense of, oh, all of a sudden I'm going to be. <laughs> <laughs> that's reassuring. That's actually really good. <laughs> so, exactly. Still walking and talking and chewing gum. <laughs> but I want to build on that. I, I really think that's an important refuge yeah. for people to recognize they're going on being, right? They're still here. They're still here. There may be endless endings, but there are yeah. also endless arisings. And at the same time, I want to you know, honor what you're saying, that as a person is doing meditation retreat or whatever, glimpses of how utterly groundless this is, that we're walking around and doing this all the time, that can be frightening to a person. And I've experienced mm -hmm. that myself. I remember the first 
sort of retreat I did, I just had never, I grew up in East Texas. I think I noticed you're from Oklahoma. I had never sat in a room silent with people day after day for a month. No, we didn't do that in East Texas. And I can just remember one <laughs> afternoon of, of day 10 or something, just the sheer silence. I was scared. I wanted to get up and go do something and sort of try and put myself back together again, you know. My own mind was frightening me in a sense, right? So making friends with silence, openness, emptiness, that's definitely a part of the journey. So what would I say to my, myself from those years ago or if someone came in and said, this is scaring me to realize contingency, that actually there was nothing necessary that mom and dad got together and that we were born. Our whole lives have been contingent, which is a way of saying mm. dependently arising. Yeah, There's nothing necessary or eternal or fixed about that. So making friends with that, the way we enact or perform or, or express our appreciation, that would be a word to get in mm. there, our appreciation for the contingency and fragility of life, the, yeah. right? That we're not promised how much longer any of us will be alive, you know? So just that kind of appreciation of the impermanent, not solid, not eternal, momentary, dependently arising. There's a fullness of heart in appreciating other humans, other life forms, nature, that fullness of emptiness. That's what I was trying to get to there, that on the other side of the contingent and dependent is this sense of appreciation and almost sacredness. All of this that's happening, there's something deeply meaningful about it, beyond just the word meaningful. That's beautiful. And that we can feel that. We have the capacity to feel and celebrate that. I think that's a really wonderful and beautiful reflection. And we've We've really approached the topic of fear so far. Fearlessness, courage, honestly, is really what we're kind of talking about and fullness of self and our relationship with our own self in this very kind of broad way so far, which I think is a really wonderful way to treat it, to narrow the lens to a very specific treatment of it. These are all kind of generalized fears that we've been reflecting on so far. It's the language that I would use, these kind of broad senses of space and uncertainty and non-wholeness or wholeness of self. To narrow in to kind of a very, very specific sort of fear, in addition to those broad, almost existential concerns, we might have very practical ones inside of our lives. Whether it's a specific moment where you're diagnosed with an illness by a doctor, or maybe something even more materially to refer to one of the fears you name in your book, a fear of other people. You're walking down the street at night and you feel threatened by somebody. Or, hey, you actually are threatened by somebody, whether it's in a business meeting or it's in a much more intimate personal scenario. How would you recommend to somebody that they practice with that feeling of acute fear in the moment? Well, I think the approach is similar in the sense that we're acknowledging that fear may be very intelligent rather than fear being something mm -hmm. that we should just get rid of. Absolutely. Fear may be the sign of, oh, there really is something to be afraid of here. If we continue on the path we're going, climate change is a reality. That's, that is something we should be afraid about. Yeah, bad things are going to happen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that frightens me, sort of, the, what, what's the future? Yeah, what's, what's possible here? I don't at all understand this sense that nowness and being present means we don't think about the future. 
or think about the past for that matter. That's, that's not my understanding mm-hmm. Of, mm-hmm. of cultivating mindfulness is that somehow you ignore that there are consequences to actions and that the situation we find ourselves in has to do with the causes and effects of the past. <laughs> I assume that you know, we could include all of that. So I would say, first of all, there's an intelligence in the fear so that even these concrete examples that you're mentioning about health crisis or whatever, it seems to me that feeling the intelligence of that fear, which is to say welcoming it in in some way, rather than trying to banish it, the opposite approach would be I'm going to actually let myself feel the fear about what my diagnosis is. I'm going to actually acknowledge that walking in this area here, I'm a little afraid, you know? So that doesn't mean that has to be the whole story. We, we constantly would need to check of like, is, is this accurate? You know, I'm, I'm basing this on a prediction, but including the fear as part of the whole wisdom of the situation. That's the, it's the still striking thing to me to propose that fear is the beginning of understanding fearlessness. It's almost saying there's a wisdom in fear. And I think that all of the so-called mm-hmm. negative emotions, mm-hmm. jealousy, anger, and so forth, do have a wisdom aspect in them. It's not that we need to just get rid of those aspects of our humanity. So can we extract, in a sense, the intelligent, wise, humane aspect of what we're feeling? And that may, here's the irony, that may give us a better way of proceeding to deal with an actual threat. Yeah, I think that's really wise advice. I think... uh... I was reading some, a piece recently from the Dalai Lama who was distinguishing between anger and hatred. And he was acknowledging, of course, the I think of it myself as a yellow flag of anger. He did not use that expression, but he did acknowledge the, the perils in anger. But he said there can be situations in which anger fuels us and energizes us, mm-hmm. and it's appropriate to have a sense of outrage at certain kinds of things. But that's really not the same as hatred. Yeah. And by analogy now, with regard to fear, I've done a lot of rock climbing. I've been in a lot of wilderness environments, and I've, I've done a lot of things in life where there's such a useful distinction between caution and anxiety. Mm-hmm. There's a distinction between vigilance and paranoia. And I think about how people can be aware of their tendencies to attribute threat level orange, threat level orange, threat level orange, you know, kind of pervasively. But that's really distinct from an appropriate caution and clarity about another person, let's say, who's actually really threatening to them or to those they care about, right? And I wondered if you could comment on that. Well, no, I think you said it very well. It's a beautiful distinction between caution and anxiety and then going back to the Dalai Lama and sort of anger and hatred. So I I don't have, nothing comes to mind. I think you said it very well. One of the subtexts of our conversation so far, at least in my estimation, has been that idea of acceptance practice, for lack of a better way to put it, or welcoming, kind of whatever word you want to stamp on it. And I know that one of the projects that you're currently exploring has to do more with this idea of fully experiencing our true nature or or welcoming our nature. And I was wondering, I just wanted to give you a moment to kind of speak to that, what you're working on these days. Well, it's what I'm trying to write about right now. And so the phrase I'm using is, welcoming is our true nature. Mm. That this is our original nature, is to welcome ourselves and others and reality. It gets covered over 
There's all kinds of obscurations and habits, but many teachings from many traditions speak of this fundamental openness that we could call mm-hmm. welcoming as our nature. That's what I'm trying to explore. What does that mean that that's our nature, which could then be cultivated like a seed? We, do we want to grow more mm-hmm. of this or more of that? I like just thinking of it as our humanity, our humanness, is mm. that we have mm-hmm. a kind of inborn openness. We are, we're welcoming beings. I think of my grandmother welcoming family and friends. Come in, come in. You know, it's, All cultures all over the world, as far as I know, have some welcoming, some greeting. That's really beautiful. No, I think that that's a wonderful reflection. I'm often interested in ways of connecting with humanity at large rather than that they're just a few of us. You know, I don't like that language. I don't like thinking about it that way, that this is some rarefied, exclusive, esoteric. I think there are esoteric traditions. I honor those. But I think a lot of this is shared quite broadly and globally. And I think it's important. I appreciate your hosting these podcasts in in cultivating these qualities and communicating about these are basic human qualities that we all need to rely on more and more. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. That's a really wonderful compliment. No, honestly, we really do appreciate that. To maybe open to that material a little bit as we wander toward the end here, I don't want to spoil the book, but I do wonder, outside of kind of simple mindful awareness uh, and awareness practice, uh, trying to kind of open the mind into that spaciousness that allows us to have that practice of welcoming, are there particular techniques or tactics or something that you've kind of found that helps people move more into that stance of welcoming? And I I do understand that it's a big question, so apologies. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. And I I will, I want to, you know, make a note to myself to, are there activities to enact this welcoming, sort of welcoming in action? I think that would be very important. That, That would be a description of the path of compassion. But what I'm focusing on in the book so far is distinguishing welcoming from meditating. Mindfulness Mm. meditation, awareness meditation, and all of those. Because those all involve doing something, and I'm trying to explore welcoming Mm -hmm. as not doing anything to begin with. I'm not saying that's the answer to something and we just need to not do anything. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying as an initial gesture toward ourselves, welcoming might be a really Mm. good basis. And what I'm trying to be careful about there is once in Los Angeles, I was doing what I call the welcoming exercise. And someone in the group said, you know, I don't like this because I feel like I'm being urged to put on a happy face. I should welcome everything. I should become a great welcomer. And I thought, you know, she has a real insight there that it could sound like welcoming is something I need to get better and better at. But actually, so I said, let's call it level zero. (laughs) It's not level one leading to two, three, four, five. Let's go back to, and I think all human beings have a level zero that's there, trying to appreciate that. And then there could be a multiplicity of techniques. I mean, at this point, there's so many modalities. But this welcoming to me could be a good basis for whatever ways we find that make sense for us to cultivate those human qualities as they show up personally for us. I have to say that having been around the block myself a fair amount, I am really valuing your focus on welcoming. Mm. It's lovely. It's fresh. I'm immediately thinking of very young children. I've worked a lot with kids, very young children, uh, infants, let's say, 
who look up at you from, let's say, a stroller they're in and they're Mm -hmm. passing you on the sidewalk and they just look at you with welcoming in their eyes. Or that fantastic picture of Suzuki Roshi on the back of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, right? Where he just looks with such welcome. It's just, it's a really lovely, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it on board myself. So I wanted to ask you if I could, a second question we routinely ask people as we move toward an end here. If you could go back in time to East Texas, let's say, mm. or maybe when you were at Exeter as a teenager in high school, If you could, what would you really wish you would have a chance to communicate to that younger version of yourself? Mm. That's a very good question. I grew up in a household. My mother was a public school teacher. She was my second grade school teacher. And there was a lot of emphasis in my household on achievement and academic achievement. And Mm. my mother wanted me to go to medical school and become a doctor. So I, I didn't do that. So I think that I internalized this. I mean, maybe, maybe I might have been born with this you know, sense of you really need to show your worth and prove your worth. And actually, <laughs> you know, underneath that, I, I would say from my grandmother, I mentioned her welcoming, I got you know, more a sense of unconditional positive regard. Yeah, I think that's Roger's phrase for it, that often in therapy, that's what the therapist can give to the person coming in. So I definitely got that from my grandmother. It sort of didn't matter whether the grades were good or not. I was her grandchild and she loved me. And so that's what I wish I could communicate to my younger self in a certain way of a, that sort of stumbling block around, am I good enough? Am I doing mm. enough to be good enough and to be valued and respected? Maybe there's something deeper than that where just being human is itself valuable and worthwhile. And, uh, and then on that basis, we can, of course, if we want to rock climb or whatever it might be, we can explore achieving certain things. But to, to have our sense of self-worth uh, tied to those so closely, that can be damaging to us. So I think that's something to let go of and try and heal. Yeah. Well, Professor, I think honestly that that's a wonderful note for us to kind of close this episode on. It's a beautiful reflection on your own life. And I think that it's something that can be really informative to most anyone who's listening. I know that speaking personally, I could certainly treat myself with a little bit more unconditional positive regard from time to time. So I think it's a, it's a beautiful sentiment. So again, you know, just thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thank you very much. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Galen Ferguson. Our conversation focused predominantly on the subject of fear and particularly the different ways in which fear manifests inside of our lives and what we can do about it. We began by focusing on the fear of spaciousness or emptiness, that sense inside ourselves that what we are or what we're doing is currently not enough. And the professor shared some ways that we can try to fill that hole in the heart, so to speak. One of the things he focused on as a technique was various forms of mindful awareness, including sitting with our experience and opening to the feeling of fear fully. When we push away the feeling of fear, it tends to only multiply its influence on our lives. So by avoiding treating fear as an enemy and instead opening ourselves fully to the experience of it, we can actually allow it pass through us more easily. 
Then Galen and Rick got into a pretty deep conversation about really the nature of reality, how all things are formless and empty fundamentally, and how coming more into the truth of that on a personal level can be an extremely disorienting experience initially and really cause a lot of the rising of fear. They then covered a couple of ways that we can potentially start to interact with those truths in order to cope with them better inside of our lives. Toward the end of the podcast, we began to explore the topic of welcoming, which is something that Galen is really focused on these days inside of his work, particularly welcoming as a kind of non-act, as a simple sense and spaciousness inside of the body that is truly open to others and their experience. The metaphor that was given by Rick was that of a child in a stroller going by on the sidewalk. How that child, when it looks up and sees your face, simply welcomes it with this extreme openness and truly, on some level, love. So that's it for today's episode of the podcast. Again, Professor Ferguson's books are Natural Bravery, Fear and Fearlessness as a Direct Path of Awakening, and Natural Wakefulness, Discovering the Wisdom We Were Born With. I'll include a link to both in the description of today's podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would leave a rating, a comment, and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. It's really one of the best ways to support us and to let other people find the podcast. Also, I'd like to offer a brief reminder about Dr. Rick Hansen's new online program, Neurodharma. It is still accepting signups. I'll include a link to it in the description of today's podcast. If you enter the code BEINGWELL at checkout in all caps, it'll give you 10% off the purchase price of the program. So until next time, thanks for listening. 